Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? In this series, I'm talking to artists, musicians, filmmakers, actors, art lovers and other creatives. I'm exploring how curiosity and courage not only creates great art and fuels the art, but cultivates a healthy mind too. These same attitudes are cultivated in mindfulness practice with scientific and evidence-based results in the treatment of depression, stress and anxiety. So I'm asking, can art save us and help change the global epidemic of mental illness? And my guest this week is a creative activist, Lady Kit, an artist, maker and drag king, described as an international superstar of feminism. You may also encounter Kit as Captain Privilege or King Kit, a terminally confused toxic male. Kit's practice, however, as a socially engaged artist is crystal clear. From performance art to giant origami, Kit addresses inequality and inclusivity, creating projects all over the world. To say Kit is hardworking doesn't even come close. Kit, hello. And thank you again, because you truly are the busiest artist I know of. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's lovely. I'm dead excited to have this chat. Oh, that's lovely. Well, Kit, to begin with, when I was looking at all of your work, I realised I could also introduce you, and this is using some of your own words, as a human with an insatiable curiosity who likes mess, making, and a healthy dose of mischievousness. And I really liked that. So I just wondered, is that, is that all about crafting human connections? What is it you're, you're telling us? Yeah, it just everything, everything I do is really driven by an interest in how can being creative help us to have more fun interesting satisfying connections and that's really that's what I'm super super interested in I guess sometimes looking at the work that I do it looks like a a big plate of spaghetti with all these different bits like juggled together like that um and it looks like a bit of a mess from a point of view of like oh what's going on there's there's paper and then there's you know recycled flowers and there's an opera and then there's drag king and like there's all these different things going on um but being inside of that it do, it doesn't feel very sort of chaotic or confusing it feels quite clear to me like what I'm interested in and what I'm doing um and I guess because I collaboration's essential to what I do I work with loads of different people and the stuff that we end up doing as part of our investigations into how we connect creatively is hugely influenced by those people so I end up doing stuff that I would never have thought of doing myself and that use skills that I don't have any of myself (laughs) because I'm interested in like working with other people and what do they want to do Um, and I guess that's why a lot of the projects that I'm involved in can look very different from the outside and you know like creating a magazine or um trying to encourage a record office to have more lgbtq history in it or writing a folk song and like these things that might often seem quite disconnected um they all come from this real interest in where 
where how does creativity help us to connect to people in more interesting fun useful satisfying ways yeah I mean it is wonderful um and when people increasingly see the breadth of your work which will be signposted with this podcast um it it really is impressive and I really do love your use of the word mess and the richness of creative collaboration because would you say mess is a form of curiosity oh I've never thought about it like that I really like that phrase yeah I think for me I guess it's a it's a natural thing that happens it can be a tool but it can also be a product of of that curiosity um and if in investigations where there's not room for that sort of awkwardness and the chaos and the mess, I just feel like there's, well, I suppose it's like there's a lack of honesty about an investigation that doesn't make room for that stuff. So if you plan uh, an investigation as much as you can plan an investigation and you don't think where is uncomfortableness and awkwardness and and mess going to fit into that and how are we going to make room for that but then also how can we build tools to sort of navigate that and manage that in healthy ways then I just feel like that is setting itself up to probably be quite disastrous to I suppose either to be like quite disastrous or just to be not very useful and and to be more like an idea of an investigation as opposed to an actual real scrummaging around trying to find stuff out. Yeah, so there's there's um, strategic planning that's that's relevant, you know, learning outcomes perhaps. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in how you might reflect on your curiosity as a child. Maybe... Maybe there was someone who was instrumental in developing that or were you just naturally curious? I'm really interested in if you were to wind back where you think that maybe all all began. Yeah, I guess, I guess like everything, it's a bit of both, isn't it? So some, some stuff that's just in there and then some stuff that's been kind of observed from, from an early age. Um, yeah, there's loads of things that as a child probably contributed to that. I guess... My granny was, I I was such, such good pals with my granny. I absolutely loved her. I mean, we had loads of disagreements about all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, we had a, we had a really, really good relationship. Um, and she was a very, uh, like, I, what people would describe her as like very gossipy, I guess. Um, and she, and that was about, for me, that was about curiosity. She was just like sort of overwhelmingly curious about the relationships that people near her had. So that was like primarily her family, but then also kind of her local community and stuff. And she just invested huge amounts of time and energy into finding out about that and knowing what people were doing all of the time and everything. Um, and there was some really rubbish stuff about that. And she could be very judgmental about things that she found out as part of those sort of investigations. Um, but also there's some lovely stuff about that. And she was 
you know, like the person that other people in the community and the family went to if they needed a bit of information about something. Um, and she was just a very easy person to talk to. So I would go and stay with her quite often. And she lived about like 12 minute walk maybe from her local shops. And we would it would take us three hours to get there and back because she would just talk to every single day <laughs> and she would know like what they were doing and what their grandchildren were up to and how was their dog and like all of that stuff um yeah so I guess I just I loved her and and sort of looked up to her in some ways although also not in a totally uncritical way like I said um and I really like I loved the fact that she was so great at chatting to people basically and and because she asked loads of questions and had this kind of like open interest, people would tell her like astounding stuff. You know, she knew things about people that probably their families didn't know about them. And because she just had this kind of open interest and, and people felt comfortable to, to talk to her and tell her loads of stuff. So I guess that's a really big influence in that, in that kind of curiosity. Um, but also, I guess, an influence in the not so great stuff that can happen with that as well as the as well as the good stuff and I suppose quite a sense of responsibility about where you take the things that you find out in these investigations um, and I think that's quite a big part of the way that I work now and also just practically takes up quite a lot of the time that I have to dedicate to work is thinking about uh, well, I guess the ethics really of being curious and like if you create situations that give people um, make people feel comfortable to say things that they need to say, some of which might be quite sensitive and difficult, then what's my responsibility as a person who's part of facilitating that? How do I create structures that mean that's not just an exploitative thing and I'm not basically like mining people for their experiences and then just taking those experiences away and doing some art with them like that that might make people feel really uncomfortable and upset and you know there's there's so much um there are so many things that need to be really deeply considered and so much communicating that needs to go on around that um and I guess that's well, not I guess that is a really, really big part of the way that I work. Thinking about, oh, how do we, how do we manage that? It's just wonderful what you've been able to share. I mean, um, I think that role, you know, that your your grandma played in openness, curiosity as a form of openness and connectedness, and 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 you know, you're very aware of the importance of human connection and. It seems that, um, you know, that's been probably quite a fundamental influence to you. But what I really love is that it's also highlighting how important trust is in that relationship. The fact that people could share all of those stories clearly demonstrates there was very deep trust. And it seems to me that Trust is a huge responsibility you are also working with now as an artist and particularly as a socially engaged artist. I wondered if you might like to share how that's maybe increasingly become a responsibility in your work. 
Um, yeah, I think the really straightforward answer to that is is that it hasn't increasingly become a responsibility. It always has been a responsibility, but I've become more aware of it and better at managing it. So thinking about when I started making work in these ways, um, I wasn't as aware of, of these things and I didn't have systems and structures in place or even think that I sort of needed them to, to keep people safe, including myself. So it's been a it's been a long and in bits incredibly torturous <laughs> process to get to the point where I can I can sort of manage those things. And also I suppose one of the things is where I could have a conversation like this with you. Because one of the things, one of the sort of things that's happened in that time and, you know, through those discoveries and those sometimes really dreadful experiences is that one of the most important things is being able to be straightforward about this stuff. But that's also incredibly difficult and it's very uh, vulnerable to be able to, to talk about this stuff. It's very you know, I have to put myself in, the, in a vulnerable position to be able to, to talk about it. But I'm also expecting a lot of vulnerability from the people that I work alongside. Um, and I think that, that probably that's been one of the biggest, most useful things in that process of getting to the point where I have a better understanding of how important this is. Um, that it has always been really important, but I've now got to a point where I'm kind of, I feel like I'm better at, at managing that, um, is just going, do you know what? I have to put myself in that incredibly uncomfortable situation again and again and again of saying, I'm really uncomfortable about this. I don't really know what's going to happen. It might be some of these things. How do you feel about that? Um, and like share, I guess, sharing a lot of how I feel about things but then also sharing a lot of the power I suppose of how things happen and being upfront about that um and not expecting that I should make all the decisions but also not creating a situation where I expect other people to make all those decisions without support to be able to do that in a way that is accessible for them and makes them feel comfortable yeah, I mean, it's it's an in incredible amount of things to think about, isn't it, um, in terms of responsibility, responsibility to yourself and, and particularly around safeguarding uh, and, 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 inc and inclusion, for example. Um, vulnerability is very core, it seems, to the work of artists and, and especially yours. I guess you might feel vulnerable as a performance artist. Um, you know, we can talk about, you know, King Kit striding on stage, but you're behind that that persona, that character. You know, how does that really feel? Um, that, that's one form of exposure, isn't it? And as you were saying, the vulnerability that you experience when you're actually taking care of other people that are involved in uh, an event or creative activity you're managing... How do you manage your sense of vulnerability? How do you keep going? Um, again, it's been a it's been a series of 
really hard learned lessons <laughs> and lots of yeah really like difficult complicated times and um, I think the main thing is ha- understanding how important it is to have different types of support networks around you um so I think when I first started making this kind of work and use like working within these kind of approaches I guess I probably had some good friends around me who I could blow off a bit of emotional steam with um but not many of them worked in similar ways to the way that I did so a lot of the stuff was just like oh poor you yeah that sounds really rotten (laughs) which is great and it's really important and I think you know I I still need that um but I also needed people who could do that and go oh yeah when I was in a situation a bit like that this is what I did or oh do you know that artist they they were talking about something a bit like that why don't you go and look at their work or have a chat with them or whatever or just really practical things like here is a session plan that will help you plan around supporting people's mental health better or whatever it is Um, and so for a long time I just didn't really have that bit of of the support network Um, and I uh there was one project I did that was just spectacularly dreadfully fell to pieces in a really really awful way was horrendous for loads and loads of people who were involved including me (laughs) um and I kind of got to a point where I thought oh I don't I don't know if I can do this anymore actually this is just this is too much um yeah so while I was licking basically (laughs) licking my wounds from that I thought no, actually, I probably still can do this, but I do need to do it in a really different way. And then how am I going to approach this in a different way that means I don't lead myself and other people into the situations that um, led to that project being so, so, so difficult. Um, so as part of that, I thought I, I need to be chatting to other artists who work in some kind of similar way so that we can share the emotional stuff but also that like the dead dead practical stuff um and had this idea of setting up something that uh we call a social practice surgery which is basically just a chat a chance for people who work in these ways to get together and have a good old chat um in complete confidence um get some stuff off their chest but also like share some some useful things um so i sort of tend to do stuff thanks really really great idea it happened Mm. and I think Mm. I think it'd be dead good for other types of work as well like I don't Mm. I don't Mm. think it's just social practice artists who need that thing Mm. you know I think like police officers might need it and lawyers Mm. yeah Mm. like all sorts of different Mm. social workers Mm. might need that kind of uh yeah, yeah that kind of structure um yeah, so I, I'd done a few sessions and then about that time I started a project with an artist called Dan Russell um, and was chatting to him about it. Um, and then we ended up thinking, oh, actually, maybe this is something that we could do together. So now we run those sessions together. Um, and there's like the sort of the the kind of cycle of each of those sessions, like preparing for it and then delivering the session and then like debriefing after them. But then there's also this kind of longer arc over the top of that of how Dan and I talk about 
our practice together, but also all the other stuff that we're doing separately that is connected to that social practice surgery, but then is also loads of different separate things. And all of those things have ended up being a really substantial part of providing that stuff that I needed to be able to manage that and to do that in kind of healthier ways. Um, so I guess that's one of the things. And then one of the other things is that I'm involved in the um, Social Art Network, which is a UK network for social practice artists. I think there's about 11 or 12 hubs around the UK um, and we have regular meetings and we're working towards a big event together in November. Um, and that's also provided loads and loads of opportunities to connect with people who were, who were working in similar ways and to share the brilliant stuff, but also share like the really complicated stuff. It, it's really, really interesting because it seems, I mean, it's such a great idea, those surgeries, because it seems you've identified that difference between empathy and compassion, where, which is increasingly discussed as empathy recognises um, feelings of sympathy um, and um, concern, but it's actually compassion that has the active role. And then you started to describe that, you know, you could come up with different mechanisms and ideas, and those, those are kind of active inputs into how somebody can deliver a project or keep going and that's that seems you know just so essential and and what your surgeries appear to be doing is is driving empathy into a more active state oh that's really fascinating i've not i've not heard yeah i've not heard uh that i've not heard those things described in that way before um yeah Talk to me a little bit more about that because I'm interested in how that yeah. reflected back through the surgery. Yeah, for sure. Because I I recently um, attended a course, an online course with the Compassion Institute, who are based in LA. And the Compassion Institute is informed by um, you know sp spiritual Buddhists, neuroscientists, psychologists, all collaborating. Um, around mindfulness, well-being, but also the significance of, of how well-being impacts the well-being of a community, of a society. And it was through that course that this emphasis became clear that there was more and more understanding through deliberate study of what the difference of empathy and compassion is and so so um you know that's a very simplified um explanation but um points to the difference of empathy being if you like you know emotionally considerate but a passive state and compassion actually is where the action happens so by understanding this, we can all learn to think about how we can become more compassionately active. So you might find that, you know, interesting. I can send you, yeah, you know, that's, links and that's things. that's really, really fascinating. And obviously, I'm just hearing about this now, so it's all new ideas flipping around mm, in my mm. head. But I, I can definitely see how understanding more about that could feed into to the social practice surgeries, but and loads of the different things that I'm interested in. Yeah, and yet you're talking about your surgery idea 
to me, is already delivering that. You seem to have instinctively found your way to that. That's what's interesting to me. So you're asking me about what I've learned, but I'm already hearing from you that that's what you understand. Ah, uh, okay. So, just don't have this yeah. set of language talking about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really interesting. Um, and, of course, interesting because, of course, as a socially engaged artist, um, you you clearly are very interested in compassionate action, you know, or action that, that helps the community and, and individuals. Um we have previously spoken about how art projects are increasingly plugging holes in social provision. And I wondered if, you know, for our listeners, if you'd like to add some context to that. Yeah, um, I suppose, I guess maybe as part of this, it's good to talk a little bit about where socially engaged art has come from and all the different things that it gets called and, and stuff. So you know, what I consider to be socially engaged art has been going on forever, like hundreds, thousands of years, <laughs> um, and has existed in a huge variety of forms with loads and loads of different names, um, community art, participatory practice, teaching artistry, um, partic- yeah, loads and loads of different things that like working in these kind of ways get, get called. Um, and sort of thinking about the history of that in this country I guess over the last 40 years maybe there's been an increasing pressure on artists involved in these ways of working to create projects to deliver work that plugs holes in in services Um, and you know to the point where you get call outs that's that sort of specifically say we want an artist who wants to work with communities to think about um how people with um uh people who are i don't know i can't i can't even think of an example but like to to work with a very specific group who are dealing with a very specific com- very complicated thing in their lives um and then through the magic of art to sort of sort that out. And it's and it really is, you know, these call-outs are really kind of framed like that, as if magically with five grand and one overworked <laughs> artist and a disparate group of people who all share some experience but also have vastly different experiences in other ways can be brought together over the course of three months to like magically sort out this really complicated thing um yeah and it's I mean it's just like we're both kind of laughing about it because it is just so utterly ridiculous um but the problem is that because it's framed like that artists feel like they need to contextualize the stuff that happens within those projects in that way um and again i guess this comes back to the mess and failure and awkwardness there's no room to talk about those things there's no room to talk about the fact that the call out was ridiculous in the first place Um, there's no room to talk about the fact that the reason that these kind of projects are needed and, and wanted is because there's a like just horrific lack of provision for so many different things there's no room to talk about the fact that 
going through that process with people will be extremely beautiful and amazing and joyful but also really complicated can be very upsetting for a lot of those people involved um, and there there is no within the frame of those type of projects there's no space for any of that stuff to be talked about in a straightforward direct way or to be kind of shown to people who haven't been really directly involved and it just leads to this really disingenuous horrible thing where artists feel like they have to say oh yeah with that five grand in those three months we did manage to sort this out jazz hands Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and it just creates this sort of perpetual wheel of of dishonesty which is rubbish um and there are some of the things that happen like within that are the idea that funding bodies think that a mate like those kind of like transformational things can happen in three months which is ludicrous you know they they just can't you can barely get to know a group in three months let alone you know do something sort of world changing together um so they and that just perpetual because artists feed back and say oh we did manage to do all of this in three months those funders keep going oh well we'll just keep offering like three month things then and that's fine um which means that some of those projects where an artist has a long-term relationship with a group are just funded piecemeal by these tiny little pots of money which obviously there's loads of admin that goes into that so lots of time spent doing the admin as opposed to actually just getting on with doing the art and you know helping people to have a good time and sharing skills and like all of that brilliant stuff um and then the other thing that happens is that some artists don't want to or are not able to for whatever reasons or there just isn't other resource around to keep those things going so those projects are just three months and in those three months a group comes together they start building relationships they feel like oh actually I I'm starting to feel quite confident about this I'm having I love my Tuesday afternoons or whatever it is and then the commission ends and the money runs out and there's nothing And then that community is left feeling really often disappointed and often really cross. Um, And sometimes that goes towards like the funders and the wider structures, but sometimes that goes directly to the artist and to art (laughs) so that the next time there is, for some reason, somebody or whatever for an artist to be able to work with the same or a similar group, that group quite rightly goes, no, the last person who came got us all excited we, we were going to do all this brilliant stuff together we were having a great time every Tuesday and then they just disappeared and we feel rubbish about it so we're not putting ourselves in that really vulnerable position with you again thanks very much quite rightly like of course um yeah so it just creates these horrible horrible cycles for artists and for people who are getting involved in these type of projects um incredibly disappointing at best but like really kind of devastating and damaging at worst yeah which is really serious because of course this points to something we we raised earlier which is the the role of trust in these relationships um and um it seems that whilst we're talking about curiosity and courage in relation to the arts the funders, the policy makers, and definitely the government 
could do with a big old dose of what curiosity and courage is because there's that complete lack of understanding isn't there about all of the issues you're raising um you know that they they need to become more curious about what it is um that they're making decisions about and setting the terms of policy or funding um what are the chances, Kit? What are the chances, do you think, of that shift happening? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know about chances from the point of view of like percentages or yeah. Um I, I yeah, I think it's it's vital for it to happen. Whether it does happen or when it happens, like who knows? But one of the I suppose over the last four years I've been more and more interested in not only in cultural policy, but how actually projects like the projects that I do and approaches like the approaches that I use can be part of making policy. So not only how can policy change to accommodate these increasingly like popular ways of working, but how can working in these ways be part of actually building those policies in themselves? Um, and quite a lot of the work that I've done recently is is related to that. Um, and that started really organically because I found that one of the things that was happening with groups and communities that I was working with were um, was policy change. So a project would be happening and then there would be a sort of conundrum or a difficulty or something would come up and then someone would say, oh, well, part of the problem with this is that we don't have a, well we, maybe we don't have any safer spaces policy for example or the safer space policy that we have is rubbish or it was really good but it's not fit for what we do anymore so let's go and sort that out and then and then that would the project would kind of start a series of conversations where that would then go and change and and that happened quite a few times and I was like oh that's so fascinating isn't it and and actually why am I just being sort of vaguely interested by the fact that's happened when maybe there's a possibility that a project could be started on purpose to try and make some of those changes um yeah so that's that's been an increasing interest over the last few years um and i suppose an example of that is a project that i'm working on at the moment um called framing social practice in collections uh, and that, again, sort of very organically came about because I was um, doing two projects that were in some ways quite similar. So they're both socially engaged residencies and they both had the potential for some of the stuff that happened in the project to be collected at the end. Um, so one of them with a, a local records office, um, Warwickshire County Records Office in the Midlands, and one with um, Durham University and their Durham University art collection. Um, and through that process, I was just learning loads about what a collection is, how different collections are managed, you know, yeah, some of the policies that didn't seem at all compatible to, like, take collecting and looking after uh, work that's generated through social art projects, um, and, I, and I was thinking, oh, I, well, I'm learning loads. I bet there are other people who'd probably be quite interested in some of this stuff. So I applied for some extra funding from Arts Council England to specifically think about that stuff that I was learning and maybe ways of, of sharing that. Um, 
So I'm kind of coming towards the end now of like a six, seven month project where I've been taking the stuff that I learned through those two projects, but then also talking to other people in other collections and other artists and groups um, about how this might affect what they do. Um, and so there's a there's a part of that which is just how practically how can policy change to be able to accommodate work people like ways of working particularly like collaborative ways of working but then also how can by collections welcoming in this work how can that structurally change organizations and institutions from the inside um and from the projects that i've been involved in so far it seems really a really welcomed approach and people are you know in people in institutions and organisations are often really aware that the policies they have are written by people who are good at writing policies but who aren't necessarily that affected by the things that are held in those documents um, yeah and actually loads of people who who are involved in those processes are really keen to to chat to people and to work alongside people who who will be really affected by those those decisions um, but maybe aren't quite sure how that could work. Um, and so yeah. some of these social art approaches have seemed really dead useful in that. Yeah, it's it's just so important. It's just so critical, you know, what you're um, acknowledging um, that, you know, it's all very well, isn't it, to place what can feel like a burden on artists. Um, could you please regenerate this city? Could you please rehabilitate the UK? Here's £2,500 and we'd like that sorted out in 10 days. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> and but, but that absurdity, you know, it really does exist. And, and I know that you, you've said previously, you know, the, the damage that has genuinely happened in the UK. Um, you know, you're experiencing it in terms of people arriving at your art events or creative events who also need signposting to, is there a food bank near here? I need some help with understanding my housing issue. And, you know, so there's been this wider role in an imposed social responsibility that, isn't necessarily appropriate because you're absorbing even more risk. And that brings me to um, a quote, actually, um, from Brené Brown, who you may be aware of. She's a research professor who's hugely fantastic and successful with her TED Talks on YouTube because she has studied things like vulnerability. Um, but here's this, here's this um, description of, of vulnerability from Brené Brown. And she says, vulnerability um, can be understood as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And I was interested in what your reflections on that were in view of everything we've, we've talked about so far. Um, on, like, on my experiences of vulnerability or on... Kind of, I guess, uh, like the, the functions of vulnerability or a bit of all of that? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, uh, 
maybe uh, both would be interesting. Your own experiences as a socially engaged artist, so it might be the vulnerability you witness, but also equally the vulnerability you experience because of things like, you know, it's one thing you're a performance artist. I mean, I'd die of fright if I had to get onto a stage. You know, that's that's, that's vulnerability right there. But also... <laughs> But there's also vulnerability in what you do because of your awareness of this, not just social engagement, but this growing, changing shift in social responsibility that shouldn't really be imposed on onto you or to the artists. Um, yeah, I do. I've got so many. So there's so many mm. different pockets of what I might want mm. to talk about. I'm thinking, mm. oh, which which one would be. Mm. <laughs> Um, I did I did consider an independent series just called, you know, <laughs> Cannot Save Us by Kick. I love it. <laughs> um, I don't, okay, I, th- I suppose the thing that I would probably most like to talk about is, as opposed to uh, specific vulnerabilities or examples or whatever maybe more the like the function of vulnerability in the kind of settings that I work in and and the enormous value of that um so I talk a lot about creative intimacies in my work and those exist along a sort of scale um from very uh, very close intimacies to sort of quite vague intimacies um, and they are but none of them along any point in that scale are possible without some vulnerability happening um, and everyone involved needs to be able to offer a little bit of that to really make those creative intimacies work and happen and be sort of genuine um yeah so it's something that I think about loads in in my work and it's a really it's a constant balance and it I definitely the way that I approach it now is is really different to the way that I used to approach it and I think when I started out I I always thought the the situations that I invite people into can be quite uh, vulnerable and they can make people feel quite vulnerable and my approach to that when I started out was so I have to not be that myself so I have to be this like ultimately calm in control have an answer to everything like s- sort of really I guess guiding the, ho- the whole process um, and I was like that's it's really important that I can do that and that's what will help people to have a good time and feel comfortable and all of that stuff and to some extent that was right and that did help quite a lot of people to to do that it wasn't massively helpful for me and also there are a lot of people who that just didn't work for either (laughs) Um, and as I've sort of developed the way that I work and changed the way that I work um I've actually found that making space for me being vulnerable as well is really important and there's a really fine line between doing that and just completely taking out a facilitator and artist just completely taking over with that and then not making space for other people um 
and yeah doing doing it appropriately so that everybody gets an opportunity to do that and I think a lot of that as well has been influenced by ideas of non-hierarchical working and really trying to dismantle this idea that like the artist comes in and they've organized the thing and um and I just less and less feel like that and more and more feel like have a have a structure that people have enough of a structure so people can understand what they're initially getting themselves into and then once we're all in that together what happens from that is is really up to all of us to try and make happen together and some of the stuff that I need in that is that I need an opportunity to be vulnerable so I need to think about structures that allow everybody else in that situation to know that about me and for us to build ways for us to support each other for that to happen as opposed to me just being this person who kind of has this overview and just makes it all happen and is like slightly removed from it um and that's just that's changed loads and loads and loads um over over the time that I've been working and I feel really comfortable about that and I feel like the projects that I do are more interesting and more accessible more welcoming more useful more fun because of those approaches yeah is it is it those approaches and structures that make you brave enough to embrace being vulnerable <clears throat> yeah that's definitely part of it I think a, a big part of it was just getting over myself like initially it was just you know like a, a sort of terror of, of going you know this is actually me and I am worried about some stuff and um and yeah and some of that was just personal but you're right once I got over that the stuff that's allowed me to continue doing it and do it in a healthy way is having those kind of structures and systems um yeah, yeah. so that it doesn't just spiral out of control and so that yeah everybody has an opportunity to be involved in those interactions and it's not just solely focused on one person or one sort of set of people yeah something um I, I I'm interested in reflecting on in in the introduction when I um mentioned that we could also encounter you as um Ken Kit a terminally confused toxic male I wanted to <laughs> return to that because that's also not um, you know, just pointing the finger. I like that you have also provided um, a description um, of that being comically manly because you're highlighting what can be dangerously macho and devastatingly vulnerable. So I actually think, or please tell me, that the character is motivated by kindness as well. Yeah, I really, I really hope so, um, because I feel like, um, I think especially with my experiences of being involved in social justice organisations and movements over the years, there's, um, there's an idea that there's a sort of sinfulness in privilege um, and that people who have certain types of privilege and specifically straight male privilege um, have to kind of atone for for that in very um, uh, sort of public way. So, they, like, there are these kind of yeah ideas about people, like sort of self-flagellation of of the privilege. Um, and I 
I can totally understand how that happens. Like I can see how how that happens, but also I just think it's really unhelpful um, and often also really cruel. Um, and so I hope that through that character, it's obvious that I am playing with and being ridiculous and kind of often really clowny with some of those ways that masculinity, like, yeah, happens and, and yeah, demonstrates itself to the world. Um, but I hope that within that, people do see that real tenderness and that understanding that a lot of these things come from having a having a really difficult dreadful time and yeah there are massive massive privileges in being a straight white dude but also there are really difficult awful things about that and one of the things that is difficult about that is being turned into this sort of bogeyman for a lot of people who have different experiences um and i just i think you know like specifically in a social justice movement context I've seen over and over again really horrible things happen because of that and also just really unuseful things happening because as soon as you start having those divisions within what should be a collaborative movement, it just stops functioning. And so we need, and again, I guess this is going back to being awkward and uncomfortable and messy and having really difficult sort of nuanced conversations if as a group of people we're going to change the things that we feel like we really need to change and I guess one of those things for me is you know trying to get to a point where we're existing in a less climate disastrous um you know way of yeah like a less climate disastrous way of existing that is not going to be solved by excluding certain people or inviting people in but then just giving them a certain pocket where they have to go and sit and be quiet because they're too privileged to say anything um and that that's just not going to help people to work together in really sort of straightforward complicated straightforward and complicated and open ways and we're just not going to fix any of these things that we know desperately need fixing um, yeah, so I guess a lot of the stuff with with the King Kit characters and Captain Privilege and all of those, all the all the drag stuff, is me finding ways to think and talk about all of that stuff, which is incredibly difficult. And like I having this conversation with you now, I feel quite vulnerable because I know there are a lot of people who will wildly disagree with this stuff that I'm saying and will be really offended by it. Um, and it, so it's very very complicated and it's uh and it feels uh yeah very um it feels very vulnerable to have those conversations and so I guess that's where turning the conversations into a series of performances and to a series of characters makes that a bit easier it makes it a bit easier for me um but hopefully it makes it easier for people who might experience those <laughs> as well um and less confrontational yeah, it's, I mean, it seems to me that you, you are incredibly brave. And I know we've talked about, you know, structures and approaches being part of what can give you the courage with some of your, you know, artistic 
delivery. But nevertheless, it's 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 still interesting where bravery comes from, um, which is might be something you want to to, to reflect on. But um, it also goes back for me to what seems to be a hugely intelligent understanding of compassion, that your performance work is an act of compassionate action. How does that feel when you when you view your own work in those terms? Yeah, I um, it's really lovely to hear you say that and... Um, I, I probably haven't really thought about it quite like that before, uh, but it's re yeah, it's extremely gratifying to hear somebody who's experienced it from the outside to like reflect it back in that way, and that feels really, it feels really great, and I guess it feels like something to aim for as well, and to maybe like when I'm working on these things to think, oh, how can, how can this work be more that. Um, yeah, because I probably haven't articulated the ambition in that, specifically in that way, but that's you've definitely tapped into something that is really, really important and like yeah, giving it a really nice phrase. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Good, deservedly. Um Kit, amongst all of your work, something that stood out to me recently it was an image of some um, paper cutouts that you had created of words posing the question, what can art change today? And I was really interested in, in what some of the responses were to that. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose that was one of those, right at the beginning, we were talking about like the, the spaghetti of of my practice and how sometimes it's quite difficult to articulate a through line even though living it being me it feels quite definite sort of what I'm, what I'm trying to do and what I'm interested in and I suppose that was one of that was an artwork I made that was part of how how do I tease out some of these things and present them in ways that people might be able to look at and think oh that's what they're going on about okay <laughs> and kind of tie together some of those little bits floating bits and pieces um yeah so it is it's a question that I think about I wouldn't I yeah it'd be disingenuous to say I think about it daily but but like very often yeah weekly for sure if not more often and uh, and it is really what drives loads of my work so when I start a, a new project or a new series of investigations or whatever it is I the immediate question is what can creative stuff do in to unfold some of the complications around this thing that I'm interested in or that somebody's presented with me with um, and it is a question that I like to ask other people who get involved in projects um, yeah so so we're gonna we're thinking about this stuff and we're doing some creative things and how do those two things connect together and how are we going to use these creative interactions that we're having to actually do something about this thing over here that we're all really interested in or concerned about or, or whatever it is um yeah so it I guess it's it's a nice little reminder for me about 
when I because I well because yeah I'm just so interested in loads of different things I disappear off going yes and yes and yes and where where next <laughs> um, so it's a nice way to pull myself back down to like this this is the thing um, and it's also quite a useful way to to share with people a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in and a lot of the stuff that kind of keeps me going. Well, obviously, the series question is posing cannot save us, you know, a, de- a deliberately big, bold question, um, which, you know, is explored with um, those lenses of courage and curiosity, but, you know, um, ex- explores as widely as possible. But there's a quote I'd like to um, share of yours, which I thought perhaps spoke to, spoke to that question, um, and it might be something you want to elaborate on. And uh, you said making is important. Making makes people happy. It creates space and time for talking, thinking, sharing and appreciating. Making makes people well people. The spaces and relationships we form while making are essential to humanness. I mean, I thought that was outstanding I really thought that was a beautiful description of how art can save us or help us but that quote and the question I'm posing can art save us as 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 wildly ambitious as that might be and outside of absurd policies and silly amounts of funding an inconsistent delivery what might your hopes be (laughs) yeah um I I love that I simultaneously love that question and I'm also really uncomfortable about it (laughs) because I think that one of the things that I sort of endlessly have massive difficult like just really practical difficulties with in my day-to-day work is this kind of grand ambition of funding bodies and arts organizations that art can change the world and art can save everything um and <laughs> but then at the same time I do utterly completely believe that people who are supported to and have opportunities to be creative in the ways that they want to be creative with other people that they want to be creative with are happier more satisfied more confident um have a better ability to support other people to get useful stuff done to understand the repercussions of the things that they do on other people like i you know i think that it just it has all of these brilliant amazing (coughs) effects on people um, and it's just really fun. It's just a lovely way to spend your time as well as all of that other stuff. Um, yeah, so I feel very torn about that question. <laughs> um, because I, while I want to celebrate all of that utterly brilliant social stuff that being creative is part of, I also don't think it is useful or reasonable to put, like, the burden of world change on creativity and specifically on people (coughs) who uh, use creativity as part of all of their sort of daily daily working life um so it's a it's a really complicated one 
and I I think that people and communities who have creativity sort of deeply embedded in the way that they do stuff um, have much more chance of creating healthy, useful, happy ways of, of doing things. And I don't just mean that from the point of view of like doing day-to-day things, but like doing vast kind of like social things as well. Um, <clears throat> but obviously there's loads of other stuff that is involved in that. Um, and for that to become like commonplace and valued, the, the changes that we would need in other bits of society are completely enormous <laughs> um, and I think I'm especially aware of that as I do more policy related work because to get to the point where you could even slightly tweak policy and then to get to the point where the people who are daily involved in the work that that covers and understand what that means to their work and are able to deliver that in a way that genuinely reflects those initial ambitions that went into changing it in the first place just doing that is like an astounding amount of work and resources and stuff to go into that and that's to maybe change one policy about one very specific thing within one organization that already values art and culture and that is already invested in changing so then to kind of extrapolate that out to all of the other things and other places where those changes need to happen is yeah it's it's sort of terrifying but then also big stuff only happens through a series of lots and lots of people being extremely dedicated to those tiny little changes so yeah I guess that well there isn't any other way I can operate this is just me and this is what I do and there's no no change in that so I'm just going to keep doing it and I am going to keep believing that if enough other people are invested in that and are supported to be able to be involved in those things that all of those little changes can actually create much bigger wider change yeah yeah it seems like we uh we should all be inviting in a a far messier collaborative wrestle (laughs) for all of these things and it's, it's really useful because in terms of that, that deliberately bold question, can art save us, um, that it does recognise, you know, that of course it's not as simple as that. And it does include things like policy and all sorts of mind shifts. So I really love the messy wrestle that you highlight. <laughs> I think we need T-shirts. I am a messy wrestler. <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. Kit, as ever, I have to race myself because um, the hour flies by. It's it's my typical complaint at the end of every interview I do because everyone is so interesting. I'm really thrilled I could talk to you today. And I would really like to say thank you, not just for joining me today, but for being such a great human in the world. 
Oh, thank you so much. That is really lovely. And right back at you. I think that what you're doing with this is brilliant. It's really exciting. And I just can't wait to hear all the other guests and all the other conversations as well. Thanks for oh, You're all priceless, James, and I really can't wait to share it and for you to, to hear each other. Um, I will be developing this and I will for sure be keeping you posted. So thank you very much, Kit. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.